And so I think that's what reality is. And I think that's what everybody else is valuing. For some reason, we feel like we're important enough for people to care about us giving them updates on life. Like I haven't posted in in, in two months. Oh, I got to post something because I'm going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to remember me. We don't call or text or catch up with random people that we used to know or people that we're not necessarily close with. We don't call them out of the blue. We just watch their stories on a regular basis to know what they're doing and occasionally react or respond. Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and nuances. I am your host, Benoit Kim, a trilingual Korean-American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non-negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of life by talking to the most fascinating humans I can find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Arsh Karbanda. Arsh works in the field of supply chain and is the founder and host of The Flex Coach, a top 1% globally ranked business podcast from Houston, Texas, according to Listen Notes. Fun fact, Houston is known for a lot of great food for those who have not been to the city yet. This year, the Flex Coach was ranked the top 200 podcast in the world, right next to the Gary V Audio Experience, which is a behemoth in the world of entertainment and media. This is extremely impressive, given Arsh is a one-man team compared to Gary V's $500 million media empire. Yes, $500 million media empire. Arsh is also a naturally born entrepreneur who has shown keen passion and talent in starting various business ventures since he was 13 years old. With over 288 non-monetized episodes, which is pretty crazy to say it out loud, Arsh is one of the few podcasters who continue to demonstrate an unwavering commitment to his listeners in the past three years, while most podcasts that started around the same time quit a year or two into the space. Of course, as Arsh told me offline, none of these really matter to him because his mission statement is to provide the maximum value to his listeners and beyond, with no strings attached, something that I also subscribe to on this show. Congrats on all your successes in business and life, Arsh. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure being on here and uh, it's a pleasure connecting with you. I, I do admire everything you've built uh, as well. And I know we spoke offline. We do share a lot of the core, uh, similar core values. So looking forward to this conversation. I think it'll be really interesting. Awesome. Love starting a Saturday with some affirmations from a men to men. So uh, your podcast is called The Flex Coach, like the flex, like flexing. Uh, but from my context of you so far, you're fairly low key. Can you explain this intentional dichotomy you've established with your brand? Right. So the Flex Coach kind of started, um, it was a byproduct of me sort of ranting to my friends and having conversations with them about why people feel the need to flex in this sort of culture that we all exist in and we all subscribe to, whether we want to admit it or not, and the culture that we're all influenced by. And so just kind of exploring those thoughts as to why does somebody feel the need to flex? Why have I felt the need to flex? And by flexing, I mean, why do I feel the need to show people what I have, where I'm going, what I'm eating, what kind of life I live, and what do I seek in return? And just explore, exploring that thought process and trying to figure out, all right, a lot of it is driven by the, the attainment of validation. We want to be validated 
Makes sense. We're social creatures. We're, we're animals. We want to be validated. We don't want to feel like we're isolated. We don't want to feel like we're an outcast. Um, some people voluntarily choose that path in life, but most of us want other people to recognize. We want to be heard because we may or may not. I mean, some people may not know how insignificant we all are, but we're all insignificant. And we want to feel some sort of significance. And just exploring that um, allowed me to kind of just come to the conclusion, all right, I want to name the podcast The Flex Coach because I want to not necessarily coach, but just talk about different ways we can flex, different qualities we can flex. Like we can flex our influence. We can flex all these other things that actually provide value and benefit. And at the core of it, I really do believe flexing is a byproduct of that, not the focal point. But a person not making impact thinks flexing is the most important part of existence. But flexing is really a byproduct. Like if you see somebody wearing stuff or if you see a celebrity that you admire on a plane, on a jet, and they post a picture on a jet, they're going somewhere to do work. They're going somewhere to work. They're saving time for themselves so they can go work, maximize their hours, continue further continue their impact, make more money for their family. And that's a byproduct of that. But somebody else will work to save up enough money to take that picture and think that's what winning is like. So that's kind of how the the brand came about is like that train of thought, trying to figure out, all right, this is really happening. And this really impacts like majority of people. Yeah, that makes sense. It's almost like in the current society, people get shunned on if they're flexing about their charitable deeds. For good things they do they're like oh you're only doing charitable goods to flex but then nobody talks about flexing in front of a private jet or lambo or all these very lavish things right it's very interesting um in terms of winning in life as you just alluded to uh, it's a very loaded question so it might as well it's a saturday let's start this on a high note uh, what does winning in life means to you personally it is a very broad broad term right like winning because the definition of winning can change even for me it changes based on what level I'm at in life. The hedonistic treadmill, you'll adapt to whatever situation you end up in and you'll have the the rush of dopamine and the satisfaction and fulfillment and everything. And then you'll be exactly where you started before you did all that stuff and where before you climbed to that level. So winning is just kind of, winning gets caught in that loop as well, right? You can consider something a win and then feel like, oh, I need this now to feel like I won. For my personal definition of winning is the consistent pursuit of what I want to be doing. And the closer I get to that, there's no there's no set goal in mind. It's just step by step on the path to something abstract, not something defined. And influence and recognition, impact, wealth, all those things are just steps. But I'm going to continue doing this until I'm no longer here. And I would consider that wherever I end up after this or whatever that reality or that world or if there's nothing, then there's nothing. But whatever that is, whatever that looks like, I would consider that to be a point from which I can look back at all the steps and consider those as, as a win. Uh, what you're saying is correct me from wrong. Our internal metrics also changes. Our baseline of metrics also changes based on what stages in life we are in. So it, there's not really one size fits all, right? 
in terms of your consistent pursuit and your really, really high emphasis on like value propositions, especially free, actual free value, uh, in your podcast description, it says to be of value to others as we all navigate through the stimulation of life. As you're a fan of Naval, as you chatter offline, he talks about all best things in life comes in iterations, whether it's interest, investment, friendships, companionship, love, and so on. So what does navigating the stimulation of life uh, mean to you currently, right? Because as you said, the stages changes, metrics changes, our chapters changes. But what does the stimulation of life mean to you? Just discovery, just kind of discovering what this is, like trying to figure out what this existence really is for myself, from my lens and from an objective point of view. What really is happening here? Like look at ancient civilizations and look at like how orderly certain things used to be and how at the same time barbaric certain things used to be, certain practices. And then you fast forward to where we're at now. And we're just flooded with artificial stuff. We're just, there's no, there's no sitting in solitude in the woods. There's a small amount of that, right? People voluntarily go do that, but then they still take pictures. They still take pictures when they're hiking or hiking is also kind of a flex now, but it doesn't make sense. Like, I think we're all navigating this. We all believe that we have to do things a certain way. And I just kind of want to break out of that, but still be able to function within it because I recognize the value, right? Like you don't want to be, and I say you don't want to be based on my value system, but I don't want to be a person that doesn't know how to be social, doesn't know how to have conversations, whether it's in a corporate setting or in an informal setting, doesn't know how to capitalize off of the world that we do exist in and the rule set that we all have to respect in a lot of ways, I need to know how to navigate through that as well as retain and build my own authenticity and my own understanding of what am I really seeing here? Like if seeing is really believing, if I see something and five people tell me they see it a different way, I have to respect and understand how I can not offend them while also keeping in my mind the certainty that I do see it this way. And maybe there's some truth to that. So let me explore that. And worst case scenario, I'm wrong. And I'm just like the other five people. But if I don't even consider, hey, my way of seeing is different, then I may not explore that further, develop that further, and then eventually influence those people in terms of, hey, no, this is actually like this. So just having that sort of lens towards existence while also learning and getting better in terms of how to still be respectful, respectful of those five people. Yeah, I sense a really strong thread of like holding strong ideas loosely, but holding loose ideas strongly, right? There's a lot there and it's not easy to do whatsoever because confrontation bias or confirmation bias, groupthink bias, you want to conform to the majority of thoughts. But then if everyone agrees on everything, which is I think in itself is very ludicrous to me because like we're two different floating stardust with different sets of genetic mutations, with different belief systems, with different cultures, different parenting. So how can we possibly ever on a global level expect 8 billion individual humans to agree? That doesn't make sense to me, right? But we can stand behind common themes of life that a lot I think humans share on a universal level. 
And also, I feel a little bit attacked because、uh, I love posting on hiking and food. Right, I was in Philadelphia recently, and my friends are like, "Oh, you're a great photographer." And I was like, "Yeah, just the iterations of taking a lot of basic food pictures and having a girlfriend, right?" <laughs> but so I, but I do see the urge of to showcasing of what I'm doing for the、uh, sake of validations. In that sense, how do you, since you're still fairly young in terms of your age, even though you're very mature beyond your years, how do you resist this internal urge when you receive an accolade with your podcast, for example, which is doing exceptionally well for how young it is, or when you receive a certain validations or compliments, or you receive something? How do you resist that urge to like, ah,、oh, I have to showcase this to the world to show them I'm worthy? It's extremely difficult. And it's only difficult because I've valued it in the past. I, I know people that don't value that at all. At first, I wouldn't really understand it. Let's say I have a friend who just got a job that pays him one hundred and fifty thousand a year, right? But he'll never post about it on Instagram. You'll never see that he works at, let's say, Amazon, for example. Never see that he works there. You'll never know how much he makes, and you'll just see. One or two posts a year, if any, right? Minimal posting on Instagram, not flexing, not showcasing a certain kind of life, but in reality, living a very, very good life. And I think the closer you are to fulfillment and the closer you are to happiness, the less you really want to post about it. I find that to be somewhat true, but at the same time, I think it's just what you input as well. Like if you're constantly seeing certain things. You could feel the urge and the desire to post. Like I scroll down my feed, and I see Instagram's only going to show you the same amount of people basically every day, right? I see the same amount of people. Like let's say a hundred people. I don't see anybody else out of the followers, out of the following. I just see the same hundred people, and the same hundred people keep posting the same content, same theme, same type of content. And if I keep consuming it, I'm only going to see that. And so I think that's what reality is, and I think that's what everybody else is valuing. For some reason, we feel like we're important enough for people to care about us, giving them updates on life. Like I haven't posted in in, in two months. Oh, I got to post something because I'm going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to remember me. We don't call or text or catch up with random people that we used to know or people that we're not necessarily close with. We don't call them out of the blue. We just watch their stories on a regular basis to know what they're doing and occasionally react or respond. And that's like that's what connection is now. If you do something that warrants a bunch of reactions, you're going to want to do it again and again and again. Or if you do something, you post something that gets a bunch of views, disproportionately higher amount of views than you previously got, you're going to want to keep posting that. And that's primarily driven. Again, by seeking validation, wanting to have confidence and self-esteem. When we're young, we don't fear and don't necessarily seek approval beyond the people that we rely on to survive. Like, and then we we grow up and we get put in this sort of box where you have to earn self-esteem. That's crazy to think about. You have to work for self-esteem. You have to work for confidence and validation, and feeling good about yourself, feeling worthy. So, when I think about that, I actively try to not only further develop that, but be mindful of that when I feel the urge to post. And I, I do post stuff that I don't necessarily believe in, but I don't post it as much as 
I used to. I, I'm not posting all the, like, everything that I do. I'll post, like, snippets of, air quotes, cool stuff because I understand the value in that. I understand that if I post a snippet of cool stuff, it's going to attract certain kinds of people that I can collaborate with and build something with that I can kind of learn from that I, that it opens doors and it depends on the value system of certain other individuals. If they value me being on a private jet, for example, then me posting about it occasionally is going to make them be more likely to respect what I have to say and what I propose to them. And if that's what it takes to eventually break out of this stimulation and be free and, you know, scale my impact and do things that I want to do and build things that I want to build, then I'll do it occasionally. I feel like finding that very fine and tricky balance between creating, uh, like establishing credibility, right? Because that's part of the game. At the same time, not doing more than what you're capable of or not fronting it. Like even during our research and prep for your guest intro, I noticed you didn't send any metrics or any numbers, even though it's a very popular podcast, highly ranked. And I had to do my own digging to find some numbers and metrics to create a buy-in for the listeners. But then through this collaboration, as you alluded to, we can scale our impact and help and trying to double down on what we love. I noticed you talked about that if you don't have some sort of a mindfulness, you tend to reactions, right? You don't want to react to validations. You want to react to reality, the stimulation of life. You seem very, you sound and seem like a very mindful person, Arsh. Do you have any some sort of uh, mindfulness practices you're here to every day or on a weekly basis? Absolutely not. And I do want to say, this is not something that I have figured out or anything. Like, this is a constant thing. This is for the listeners, like any, if anybody ever says that they figured it out, they've solved this and they're always mindful and they just move absolute, per- like with absolute perfection all the time, then I don't know, maybe they're a charlatan. Like, I don't, I don't believe in that. There's no way you can do that. Being a human, having these impulses and desires and emotions, I just find myself to be highly critical of my own way of existing. And that leads to me thinking about what I'm doing and then dissecting it in a way where I'm, again, put the lens of being critical. On top of that, you find yourself in a place where you're actually thinking about what you're doing. So that's to the extent where I'm mindful is like, I just think about what I'm doing. And I think about it on a sort of larger scale than just immediate gratification or immediate magnetizing whatever impulse I have or emotion that I'm trying to seek or, you know, just thinking about what I'm doing. That That's all I'm doing. It's an active thing. Every day you have to think about what you're doing. And there are a lot of days where I struggle with this. Even with maturity, you said like mature beyond your years. I think that's not something that is a constant. There are plenty of moments where I'm immature. There are plenty of moments where I'm, where I let myself be free from my own level of criticism that I apply to my life. I let myself be free. Um, and that's mainly around a couple of people that I can think of where I'm like really exploring what kind of childhood childlike fantasies I have 
that I haven't fully explored or developed or thought about? Like, why do I feel the need to be a certain way when I'm around certain people and then feel the need to be a certain way when I'm around other people? And that's what leads to being mindful because you're really like auditing every single thing you do at all times. And then again, that eventually leads to self-awareness. Yeah, the best definition of critical thinking I heard is thinking about thinking by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. I know you're thinking about more on a critical thinking about your way of life. So I know that you've had a pretty early venture into business entrepreneurship since 13, starting on esports organizations on YouTube, which kind of fell apart because of other older uh, negative influence and such. So how early did this urge to be critical of your own way of life, your own thinking start? Because you talked about you're highly critical of yourself, right? Is that, uh, of course, it's always nature and nurture. Like, how early did you notice this metacognitive aspect of yourself? You're like, oh, I think about thinking or I think about myself quite often. Thinking about just life and existence in general, the earliest sort of memory I have is, I think, being like eight or nine and just really clearly visualizing in my head, what if nothing existed? Like, what if there was nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. That, that was a, in retrospect, that's a scary thought to have when you're like eight or nine, if, if I'm remembering <laughs> correctly. It's like, what if nothing exists? And I could really visualize in my head just emptiness and darkness. Like, there, there, there's nothing. We wouldn't, even, we wouldn't know what existence would have been like. We wouldn't know any of this stuff. I feel like I've always had thoughts like that where I'm really just thinking about what really is this, blah, blah, blah. We touched on this before. And then the critical, the criticism or the self, being critical of self came through just external stimuli. I think I didn't understand what I was doing wrong in a lot of situations. And then I started becoming critical of wait a minute, let me think about what I'm doing wrong. Or let me at least think about what I'm doing. And that led to making better decisions. So the YouTube stuff, making videos at 13, that collapsed because I put my trust in certain people. Just being naive, being young. I really believed I didn't have friends. So I'll contextualize that I moved to the United States when I was 12. And I didn't have uh, social outlets. I didn't have friends. And so I gravitated towards making YouTube videos, gaming videos specifically, but I just love playing video games, Call of Duty to be specific. I watched a couple of YouTube videos of people doing it, early FaZe Clan videos, and that really inspired me to make my own, uh, make my own videos, start my own clan is what they were called, uh, which is essentially, which has eventually evolved into an esports organization and it kind of operated in that manner back in the day as well for me, where we had structure and order and, and things like that. So I, I was smart enough to do that, but naive enough to let that go, but not bold enough to do something about it when it's gone. And that was like, that was the three-part series, if you want to call it, of my 13 to 15-year entrepreneurial run of like, I built something that was great partnered YouTube channel. I had everything like that I wanted as a kid making money from YouTube and I was just stupid. I just gave the password to a couple of people I never met in real life that were on my 
air quotes team because I, in my head, I don't even, I can't even retrace those steps. But if I had to guess, I was probably such a naive person, so trusting because I felt like I was so pure. How could anybody have malicious intent? Everybody else was just up, just reaping the benefits of what I was building on a constant basis, right? So they just deleted it out of jealousy, whatever it may have been. And the biggest L is I didn't do anything about it after. I didn't appeal it to YouTube. I didn't write an email. I didn't try to do anything or try to recover it. Um, I kind of accepted it. In my head, being a young person, I didn't know, one, somebody would destroy something like this, but two, there's actually something you can do about it in a case. Like I didn't even think about the disruption, let, let alone appealing and the systems that YouTube put in place in case something like that happens. That's quite a chronicle, man. And I mean, yeah, that the, it's impressive, really impressive that even at age 13, you had this business acumen and even this vision, right? The structure in an orderly way for a eighth grader, seventh grader at the time, however you were. It's great. It's, yeah, it's, that's very impressive. I used to teach middle school uh, through my nonprofit, Teach for America, years ago. And you sounded a lot wiser than some of the students I used to teach. So um, yeah, shout out to the youth adolescent, Arsh. You talked about you're smart enough to have this vision, but naive enough to mistrust it to the wrong hands, quote unquote. And you didn't have this boldness to pursue after she went down, so to speak. I reckon like psychologically speaking, because I know you have a lot of fascinations in human psychology. I'm, of course, a clinician in mental health. Uh, I reckon there is some sort of influence, whether it's negative or positive. That's not the point. But how have that influenced you to this date working in a business sector? hosting a business podcast, how does that theme of trust come in and out of your life, whether it's personal life or professional life? It's kind of just one of those things where there are layers of trust, levels of trust that I apply to different people in different situations. If, for example, I want to share a life with another human, the level of trust that I require from, that, from them is going to be extremely high. If I want to work in a work environment, the level of trust that I require from the team that I'm on is going to be not as significant. And even there, the significance changes and varies due to based on the importance of the task. So it's kind of a floating variable for me, but best believe it comes with a lot of scrutiny. Like it's not easy, even with my girlfriend at, at the moment, I, it, it's, it takes a lot for, for me to reach a point where I'm fully trusting, but I feel like by nature, I'm always skeptical of everything. So, but I'm not skeptical to the point where I don't indulge in what you require back from me, right? So like if I'm just skeptical and somebody keeps showing me that hey, you can trust me and I don't give them any validation back, then they're not going to want to do that. They're not going to want to further enhance that. So I know how to give it back, but I also know how to maintain my skepticism because people, I mean, we're all getting really, really good at acting. We're all getting really, really, really good at just knowing how to manipulate conversation, knowing how to deceive, knowing how to put on that, that further refine that mask so you can't really see who I am. 
If you think about when 48 Laws of Power came out, that was 1996. We're in 2022. We've had a lot of time, a lot of information to figure this out. So I maintain a level of skepticism at all times, um, but it's not overbearing. Yeah, so I want to continue on this train because I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more about this facade and mask people equipped ourselves with to navigate this life, right? Uh, you talked about uh, the move to help shape you coming from your country to United States at such a young age, and it helped you with this intercultural and maybe humanistic or psychological ability to weed some people out based on certain characteristics, certain patterns, themes, and so on. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by the mask that people have become such great actors and actresses in this world trying to get what they want? I don't want to say that I've figured it out. Um, again, it's just something that is kind of a constant. There's new information being fed into that train of thought every day. I'll learn something about somebody I feel, feel like I've known for years and I'll realize, well, I didn't really, I didn't really catch that. I didn't really know that. But at the same time, I'm not like hyper analyzing everybody that I talk to or like I don't have this sort of AI software in my head that's just breaking somebody down based on characteristics. And like it's just something that is, I feel like, innate in my nature. It's just part of who I am. I like to look at that. And you know what? I think the YouTube stuff really contributed to that because I felt like I could trust people. So now I'm just I have my guard up. And then you have a couple more experiences like that where you realize oh, people are kind of deceiving, but they're not really going to say anything directly. Like it takes a lot for a person to directly confront somebody else, unless you're really like just, you know, ready to go at all times, but they'll never directly say anything. And I started to piece that together when I moved here. Again, I, I even retrospect before I moved here, I would be naive and I would be kind of pure in my expression longer than I guess other kids or young adults or young teenagers, whatever, uh, maintain that sort of childlike spirit. Like, I feel like I, I kept it longer than it, I was supposed to. And I say that in air quotes for just the audio listeners. Like, I felt like I kept that longer because I would be imagining stuff and just having these thoughts and ideas and I would get shot down. And this is like fifth grade. I moved here in eighth grade. Being sort of analytical is a byproduct of my upbringing, my experiences, and then just realizing that things are different. People will act how they want to act, but they'll talk to you in a way that appeals to you. And that sort of deception was completely foreign to me, completely new to me. And um, once I discovered that at, I'd say like 12, 13, I kind of started to piece it together. Um, it just changed how I viewed everybody. I kind of viewed them as, and now I'm in a place where I feel bad, but back then I would be easily provoked. I'd feel like if somebody's being deceptive, I need to point out that I know you're being deceptive. But now I don't point it out. Now I just kind of feel bad or just accept that's what it is. That's where the person is in their life. I put on a mask as well. Like we all put on masks. Nobody is consistently themselves. You can't be consistently yourself. That's another thing, like certain environments require us to put on masks. We all have to put on masks. We all have to know how to act in what environment we find ourselves in. But at the same time, knowing how to look past somebody else's mask 
and not feeling the need to dump on them is powerful because you just have to accept. And that's like the compassion that you can build over time is I accept you for whoever you want to be, whoever you think you are and whoever you're trying to be, because I understand. And if anybody says they don't understand, they're lying. Everybody understands. Maybe some people aren't, they don't understand, but they're deep into aware of that, right? Because it's a human characteristic. I think that's pretty universal. Uh, yeah, I went to watch Doctor Strange yesterday with my partner, uh, The Multiverse, pretty good movie. These five kids came in obnoxious 50 minutes in, probably movie hopping and stuff. And I just felt this uncontrollable urge, right? Because that's my biggest pet peeve. I, I, movie is sacred for me. Like it has to be peace and quiet. And then I, in order to dissipate my own fury, because it's not like I could put a fingers on these kids as a grown ass adult, I had to start telling these stories and I'm hyper aware I'm playing these story games, but I think like narratives helps us reshape our worldview. And I told myself that, oh, these kids probably have chaotic family dynamics or their behaviors are the byproduct of parenting, which is most likely true, but it's just all speculations. Uh, and I, f- I sense a little bit of what you're doing, right, is you don't have to call them out every single time because they're probably in pursuit of what they're doing, or maybe they're going through their own seeds of sacrifices, and we just don't know. And we can never know, um, just like online, whether you love or hate Trump, it's just a persona he curated. You never know him unless you've seen his body language, you've seen his mannerism, you've seen the way he speaks to you. Um, so and I think that applies to Obama, any other public figures, whether you like him or not, it's all about, you don't know who they are. You've seen a slice of the curated image, um, for better or worse. Um, and I also sense a theme of internal versus external, right? Like you want to stay true to who you are while still being mindful of the external influences, because we're all part of this one reality. Uh, you talked about, you've always had this innate ability to, pursued what you want in spite and despite of what people say right that applies to youtube that applies to your investing that applies to your podcasting um how do you manage that external chatter that's always constant um, everyone nowadays thinks they're entitled to their opinions on every single subject everyone thinks they're the expert of every single subject which isn't the case by the way yeah how do you how do you manage that external noises it depends on who it's coming from Right. Like, I think there's always going to be noise, but I only value certain kinds of noise. Like, I don't even value noise that, again, I don't value. (laughs) I don't, I don't even, I don't even let it enter. Like, it's interesting though, because sometimes it does, it's sometimes it pierces through. And I'll admit that I think it's true with every human, unless you're like super enlightened and you spent 10 years meditating and you, don't take offense to something that somebody says like that's a very very different you know kind of mindset but sometimes i do let external chatter get to me um and by get to me i mean have an impact on my emotional state letting it happen a few times and then realizing it was never significant will kind of just help you build those muscles like it's just a repetition right you let it in and you realize wow that didn't really end my life or that didn't really suck as much as I thought it would suck. My favorite quote of all time is, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. That's my favorite quote of all time, because we can imagine ourselves out of the beautiful situation that we're in, 
that to me is fascinating. You can be in a shitty situation and imagine yourself out of the shitty situation. We don't think about that as much. We don't think about the polarity that exists there. You think about like David Goggins, right? He'll run whatever, 200 miles in a day or something. He's imagining himself out of the situation he's in to take away the significance of the suffering. And by significance, I mean the negative impact that that suffering and that thinking about that suffering can bring to your actual performance towards that, that, that suffering, essentially. So that's how I view external chatter. Um, it is something you can also use. It's something you can use to your advantage. I know highly emotional people that are fueled by external chatter primarily fueled by external chatter. They're primarily fueled by what other people think of them, what somebody says to them, like being in that sort of, oh, you said this to me, or you don't think I can do this? All right, I'm going to show you I can do this. But you can think yourself into that mindset without having somebody else say that to you. Right? So like, it's, it's just words. But yeah, I try to maintain composure and like, a steady sort of internal narrative going on at all times. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that quote. The I, this is why I love human psychology, human brains, because we are every single one of us are the greatest storytellers and fiction writers. What I mean by that is we self write our fictitious stories based on a snippet of context. Let's say we got off the wrong foot, had a passive aggressive text. My brain doesn't just leave it at you're like, oh, it's ambiguous. There's not enough context. Maybe I should follow up to see what he actually means. Instead, most of us would continue to write a plot story, a fictitious fiction of stories based on our own assumptions. We'll keep writing that plot until you're, oh, you're furious, you're pissed. You're like, I cannot believe this. That Kian Peel, a comedy duo, they have a popular segment about this is like how people interpret text messages. Highly recommend people to check it out. It's like two minute clip. But it talks about how even in text, how you read that text is a reflection and byproduct of how you feel at that very moment. And you let that emotion carry into the text, even though there's no emotion behind that text. It's just a text, right? Um, and I want to add a quick side note to what you said, Arsh, is what Arsh is saying is imagining, right? It's taking the power of ownership, not escaping. I just want to make that fine distinguishing because uh, he's not saying David Goggins or all these greats they escape from their reality because escapism isn't good. Well, sometimes it has its purposes, but that's not what he's saying. And in terms of the greats, Devin Goggins, and I know you've had a lot of amazing business people and entrepreneurs in the show, right? So I want to take a soft pivot into the more business and podcast aspects. So from, I mean, 288 episodes and counting, you've interviewed a lot of a lot of people, a lot of high-level folks, a lot of entrepreneurs, CEOs, business owners. Oh, if you were to compile, right, speaking of the greats, if you were to compile a list of qualifiers based on your experiences and your interviews and this collective observations you've been doing with your guests, uh, what do you think will be on that list of qualifiers that separates the great entrepreneurs from maybe just good entrepreneurs? Right. Number one is definitely consistency. You, you could have guessed that before I even said that, right? Number two is recognizing recognizing your own worth in a lot of ways and recognizing that 
you can't rely or expect from other people. That's the biggest one. Like you can't expect successful people or people that have a little bit more money than you or are a little bit more successful than you to do anything for you. That's, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions in life is like, you think if you know somebody that's successful, that's the key. That's that's the key that's going to unlock that door. Yes, it can in terms of, hey, I know a successful person, so I got invited to this party where there are 10 other successful people and I connected with them and now I have a network. And then hopefully one of them gives me a job or gives me an opportunity. If you are a type of person that can do that and maintain that connection, then that's beautiful. But I think nine out of 10 times, they're not really going to just give you anything for free. You're not going to get something by knowing somebody. You're going to get something by doing something. And that's what, that's what separates the great from just good. Good is I have a, I have a bunch of connections and I just got tips on like what to invest in or I know what to pursue or whatever, whatever information, whatever advantage you got from that connection. But great people build something and find that the value is in your peers. The value is in connecting with people that are also trying to do what you're trying to do. Because that's how you build something. Like you look at Tesla, like any any company, right? Like you're building stuff with people that are also driven and passionate about the same things as you. And then you get to the point where you now rely on other successful people to fund that idea. But it's not the other way around. You don't go to the investors first and say, hey, I know you, you're my friend, give me a bunch of money, I want to do this. Well, no, they're going to ask you, who, who are you doing it with? What's your team like? like? What are you building? They're not just going to give you money. So that was number two that I learned um, is you're going to get more value out of your peers than you are trying to chase like successful people. And that's what the whole concept of cloud chasing was, right? Like trying to climb up the hierarchical ladder in hopes of eventually ending up there. Well, you got to start with the people that are also trying to do that. And then both of you will get there or one of you will get there. That's just sort of an easier path. That's what I've learned. Um, and then a couple other qualifiers, I guess providing value with, again, not expecting anything in return, but at the same time, you don't want to just do charity work, right? You can't just, you can't just be doing things with no purpose. And again, a return on your investment is not necessarily what purpose means, but just don't do things with no purpose. Like, I just don't want to continue doing charity when I have all these dreams because I'm not going to be able to actualize those dreams. So again, that's, uh, those are like the couple of things I've learned. Um, but that's a good question. I would love to think about it more and, uh, you know, maybe compile a list where you send it and put it in the episode notes or something. Cause I really want to do, do that question justice. Um, but those are the things that came to mind. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely follow up accordingly. Uh, this is a personal curiosity of mine that's sort of on the same train of thought. Uh, you know, the common, I mean, there are so many cliches nowadays, but one of the biggest cliche in the business world, as you may guess it, it's not what you know, but who you know. 
what do you think about that statement? Whether it's a fallacy, it's accurate, there's semi-truth there. What's your thoughts? Semi-truth. Um, it does matter who you know. I had a guest on who was an early investor in Nikola Motors. I don't know if you remember that whole situation. Um, and this person was really good friends with the founder of Nikola Motors. He invested half a million dollars. And in a year, his half a million dollar investment, again, that he could have only made if he knew the founder, was worth $30 million. So it does matter who you know. But at the same time, that's not the end all of, of your journey or your your life. Like That's not the only thing that matters. It also matters how competent you are yourself. You can be more you can be competent enough to not rely on anybody or you could be not competent and know a couple people and still figure it out there's just different ways it's just different paths um there's no constant in life besides what you early what you laid out earlier right death is a constant that's guaranteed to happen but there's no constant you don't know what set of parents you're going to be born to what environment you're going to be born in you don't know who you're going to eventually end up knowing because of the advantage, the, ovar- the, the ovarian lottery, they call it. You don't know how that's going to shape who you end up knowing, what path you're on, blah, blah, blah. So with that said, the only thing you can control is how competent you become. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's like the few controllable variables. And of course, that competency also has to be contextualized, right? Because it looks different mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, yeah, in terms of speaking of constant. One of the greatest joys of being a, ho- a podcast host is, at least for me, I get to witness a few common threads and themes of life that's demonstrated by many different walks of life, whether it's PhDs, neuroscientists, entrepreneur, a social influencer, actor, you know, poets, they all exhibit certain themes of life that's ubiquitous across the spectrum of what we call this humanity or this reality. Um, so for you, I know it's a little bit of a, a contrast to this concept we're speaking of, but what have you noticed some of the common or maybe constant human themes across on your business podcast since you're, the nature of your podcast is different from mine, whereas mine's a little bit more broad, more encompassing. Yours is very about giving tangible, concrete values to business people. Uh, so whether you can speaking from a business end or just overall, but what are some constant universal themes you've seen over and over again on your show right now i'll I'll, um, add to your contextualizing of the podcast i think it's not necessarily all about just providing business value or like how to scale your business and stuff like that i think lately it may seem like that but really very much i love talking about just life and people and even if even if you have a company that's worth a hundred million dollars i still want to know what you know, drove you to do that? Like, how did you navigate those hard situations and those hard days and nights? And how many hours did you really have to work for how long? Like, I'm curious to know about the person more than I am about what they've built. What they've built is a byproduct of who they are and what they wanted to do. So with that being said, I do see a lot of themes. And one of the themes that I've noticed is that nobody really has it figured out to a T. You can't really have it figured out, but the most successful people don't really have it figured out. And a lot of successful people struggle. I had somebody on the podcast, a very successful individual, 
you know, multimillionaire, um, has his own law firm and just not happy. He was wondering, why am I still not happy? I have a big house. I have beautiful wife, family, all the money that I want, cars. I'm still not happy. And that really made me realize like, all right, some people really like can have it all by the definition of what we all think all is, but still be not happy. And then you realize everybody's trying to figure it out at all times. Like again, the hedonistic treadmill, it's real. I have been in situations where I had, you know, again, very, very grateful and blessed to have the parents that I have, but I've been in situations where I wanted a lot of things and I only got one of those things. Like absolutely, you know, just average, um, middle class, whatever you want to call it. And that's still a very, that's still very much a luxury, um, in the grand scheme of things. But when you're young, you don't have that perspective and you look at your immediate environment. I was lucky enough to go to a school where everybody's family made way more money than, than my parents did, but I was still lucky enough to be there. And based on that environment, I feel like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this, but I didn't get this, this, and this. And now I'm in a position where I, I'm just fortunate, like, to buy whatever I want and do whatever I want. Again, with limitation, I don't have unlimited money. Like I'm still trying to work hard and, and build wealth for myself and, and my future, you know, generations. But the point is, it's very much a work in progress. Like you will never get to a point where you have it figured out. And that's one of the themes that I've noticed. Success is a byproduct of you trying to figure it out. Um, and you trying to create, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, that's one of the themes. And then I'd say just being consistent, um, persistent, also not being deterred by failure, not being deterred by external stimuli or what somebody may think of you. Like I really truly believe you can rebrand and relaunch unlimited times, especially if you're a small creator or if you have a startup, you can just rebrand and just launch again and again. That's what Airbnb did. They just launched every like six months because their first launch didn't work out. Their second launch didn't work out. They just kept launching until they until it worked out. We put too much of an emphasis on what will somebody think, parents included. What will my parents think? They see me being passionate about something. They see me spending hours upon hours on something, and it yields no results but it yields no results in the language that they value. It's compounding for you. And so those are some of the things that I've picked up through these episodes. It's like people that really made it happen, like understood the importance of just continuing to do regardless. Uh, I noticed, I like to echo that, especially the messaging board of some of the most successful people, whether it's financial success or whatever metrics of success you define them as, they are still figuring out. And some of them are very disorganized. They don't have all this meticulous system in place. It's very, some of them are very reactive. And I think we just tend to put people on a pedestal that we like to view from afar because I think subconsciously we also want to be that person. So we, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's like, oh, if these people have their shit figured out, that means when I get there, I will have my shit figured out. It's a very linear thinking and life isn't linear whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And in addition to Airbnb, um, Netflix also did something similar. It wasn't quite launching like Airbnb, but they had to repackage and they had to revamp their profit margins with their product is entirely after 
you know, um, Blockbuster tried to buy them out for a fraction of what they're worth. And their success, the cure on Netflix is actually a byproduct of reinventions of who they are as a brand. So I definitely echo that. I want to ask you to contextualize this a little bit more, the hedonistic treadmill. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Since I, I think I know what you're talking about, but uh, I don't know exactly sure. But if you can explain uh, what that is. Sure. So basically what I mean is it's just a never ending loop of always returning to your current level of satisfaction. For example, if you give me a Lamborghini right now, I'll be nine out of 10 happy, 10 out of 10 happy. And in two years or one year, I'll be back to how I feel right now with my current car. That's the hedonistic treadmill. Like in two years, I'm still going to look at it, still admire it, still enjoy what is a byproduct of driving that car, whether it's looks, validation, whatever. Still going to have those elements, but I'm not going to feel as happy as I would if you gave it to me right now. And so eventually, it doesn't matter how much money you have, if you, whatever you want, like whatever you think in your head that you want to buy whatever you're saving towards or whatever you like constantly look at but can't afford yet, it's not going to make you as happy as it does while you're looking at it. While you're looking at it, that's the, that's the most consistent level of happiness you'll have with that product. I'll give you an example. I, and I'm, I'm proud to say this, I bought a Tesla and I constantly keep looking at when <laughs> it's going to arrive. I keep refreshing the app twice a day. Keep refreshing the app. I keep seeing, all right, is the delivery date changing? Because in my head, I'm like, dude, it's going to feel so nice to have that car. It's going to feel so nice to, to, to take delivery of it, to get in it. I keep imagining, I keep watching videos, right? That's the most amount of happiness I'm going to have. Minus when I do get the car, do experience it for like six months. After that, it's just, I'm going to feel exactly how I feel about my current car. I still have to go go to work now more than ever because I have to pay for this car, right? So it's like you're not really, there's no constant like stream of happiness that comes with any of the hedonistic pleasures that we seek. It's always just spikes that will always return back to where you are now. So why not focus on enhancing where you are now without those external things so that when you do get those external things, you're not, or, or don't get those external things, you're not deterred either way. What if, let's say tomorrow I realize, hey, I can't really afford this car. I can't really get this car. How am I going to pay for it? I can't pay for this car. I shouldn't be disproportionately sad. Or I shouldn't feel like I'm a failure, life sucks. As much as when I do get this car, I shouldn't feel like I made it, everything's beautiful. It's just the current state should be normal. And then the treadmill will always return. You'll always return to where you are. There is a psychological term called uh, objective permanence, right? Because we talk a lot about the impermanence of reality. So objective permanence simply means when an object is so permanent in your life, you forget about it. It's a law of constants, right? So like you said, whether it's a Tesla, congrats, by the way, beautiful, beautiful car. One of my closer friends has it amazing ride so quiet and just so seamless um but yeah once like once you have the tesla for six months a year or a 10 million dollar house you always admire it you always adore it but the object permanence dictates 
on a human psychological level that it becomes part of your background noise. That's it. It just becomes part of your norm. Um, and I, yeah, I just want to highlight that because like what R said there, that's probably one of the fundamental tenets of human nature and just existence is whatever you're pursuing, I'll be happy when syndromes or whatever desire you attach on the other side of this thing you're chasing after promotion, girlfriends, stature, whatever, it's going to fade because it's literally a law, human nature law. Um, and another example I thought about is, I forgot who said this, I think Russell Brunson years ago, he talks about how it's like anticipatory bliss, right? People get more jazzed up about prepping for New Year's Eve than actually going out for New Year's Eve. Like that pregame, that hanging out, socializing, getting ready, glamoured up is the most highest dopamine receptions you'll receive. More than any time you go out, that's when shit goes wrong or weather goes bad or heels break, right? But that's also a really concrete example to talk about the hedonistic treadmill or objective permanence on that sense. Um, speaking of psychology, Arsh, uh, your fascinations with human psychology, you're very introspective. I could tell as we talked about throughout this conversation, you think a lot. I could tell you're a thinker, uh, maybe a little bit heady too. So do you have anyone, whether it's business or just in terms of this fascinations with human nature or behavior? or how we exist in this so-called container of life. Uh, do you have any of those influences from your family? Like, is it modeled after someone? Because the answer is always nature and nurture, right? Uh, but I'm just curious about where did this fascinations with human psychology and behavior stems from? So I'd say no. Um, and I only say that because I didn't get any direct sort of guidance in terms of like how to think or how to view the world. It was a lot of like, if I had to think, it was a lot of fear-based, fear-driven um, actions that my parents kind of bestowed me upon me. It was just all driven by fear of like, fear of not having enough or fear of not being healthy or fear of like, I don't know, just failure. It was all fear-based. Their actions were fear-based um, with the exception of my mother's decision to move us to this country. I don't think that was based out of fear, but part of it was, I want a better life for my, for my son. Um, and that can be rooted in some sort of fear of not being able to create that in that environment. But even then there was, there wasn't a clear sort of like path or guidance in terms of human nature or how others behave. Um, I think I got a lot of my a lot of me being naive from my parents. They were very, you know, my mom's a very pure person. She's very, very pure. And now I have conversations with her where I point out, hey, maybe you should like think about what that person said or did a little bit more and like evaluate it further and and see if, if you catch what the nuance is there, not just them saying things, you know, just not being naive. Um, but at the same time, they did teach me how to be confident and believe in myself. And it's a weird combination. It's fear-based confidence. You're, you're, you're fearful of not having what you have. You're fearful of failure, but you're confident in your ability to do something about it. And that's kind of the extent to which I got. Obviously, I got a lot more than that in terms of characteristics and qualities and just overall influence, but I didn't get this fascination with human nature. I think, I think that's just developed over time. Um, I would even say early marijuana usage contributed to that. 
Um, and that was just something that I found myself in because of just being naive um, and not being, not recognizing the the consequences or the significance of what I'm doing. Kind of just being like, all right, this is what being cool in air quotes is. So now I'm going to also do this. Like, And the environment that I came in in this country, my mom remarried and um the 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 my stepbrothers they they would smoke weed so it was just around me and i just kind of i just thought that's what was cool so i did it um and i feel like that really that really contributed to my early sort of like thoughts that i would have when i was high and it's not something i did for very long um or you know i didn't do it in excess but even just doing it a few times yeah, I feel like I, I, I gained from that and lost from that. Um, and I feel like this is very close to what a lot of people would say about like acid trips or shrooms or whatever. But I just like just weed kind of helped me figure out that there are multiple dimensions of thought. Like it's not just one way of thinking. You can actually think about thinking. You can actually like there's all sorts of things that you're not thinking about or all sorts of views that you're not applying or, or actualizing. If you get like glasses with different filters, it's kind of like that. To the listeners, my next actually upcoming episode after this is with the founder of a psychedelic research retreat. So we'll go really, I'm a huge advocate for plant medicine and also marijuana medicinally if you do it properly to help connect different points in your internal psyche and does reveal this dimensions, multi-dimensional thinking, like Arsh said. Um, let's uh, ride on the train of immigrations and honor our parents for a second, because I'm also the byproduct of my parental sacrifice when I came over at age 15, uh, raised by a single mother, since my my uh, biological father was non-present and non-existent. I talk about this a lot with fellow immigrants, guests, and friends, since I feel like it's a very different lens that a lot of white people don't have if you're born here, right? And honestly, it is the deepest privilege uh, being in this country, in this current landscape of one burning down. And of course, America is also burning down on its own. But relatively, it's it's a deep privilege that you just wouldn't know unless you have lived in different countries, which I have. And so have you, Arsh. I view us as the seeds of our parental sacrifice, that we owe it to our parents to live out our fulfillment, to live out our dreams, to live out our visions, because it's through their sacrifice we're able to be in this space and time to pursue what we love. So in a way, we owe it to them to reach or try to reach our maximum potential. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that as a fellow immigrant child yourself? And you're doing a lot of really cool things. And this podcasting is a wild freaking journey, a wild journey with a lot of hardships, ups and downs. Um, but how do you view us and you as the seeds of your parental sacrifice and you owe it to them to do something about it? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's important to recognize that and recognize the privilege that, again, we received through the actions and sacrifices of our parents. But at the same time, you can't let them guilt you into doing what they want you to do. Like that's that's a very, very fine line. And it takes a lot of suffering to get to a point where you can make them proud in your own way. Like that is. I would say that's probably the hardest thing in the whole world is to make immigrant parents proud by doing what you want to do if it strays from what they wanted you to do. So that's the caveat there. Like if they want you to go to school, become a doctor, whatever, like that's what, <laughs> but, but, but the thing is they just want you to be successful and happy. 
and safe. They want you to be safe, successful, and happy. That's their primal urge, is for you to be safe, for you to be happy, for you to be successful. If you can recreate that however you recreate that, they'll be, they'll be fine with it. You don't have to like do exactly what they want, but at the same time, respect it. Um, and I like what Gary Vee said about this. He said, if they pay your bills, then you have to do exactly what they want you to do. And that, I agree. If they pay, if they pay for any of your stuff, you got to do what they want you to do. But if they don't, and if you're okay living below your means, or if you're okay, you know, figuring it out on your own with no support or being broke or not having enough food to eat, whatever it may be, like, however you figure it out, if you can do that, they'll still be happy and still be proud. And they're also human beings. They're also kids. They're also kids trying to figure it out. I don't care if they're 30, 40, 50, like they are children trying to figure it out. We're all children trying to figure it out. Nobody's, the concept of an adult is weird. Yes, we have like, or right, you're 18, you can do whatever. You're 21, you can drink. Like, But we're all essentially kids trying to figure it out. And when you look at your parents like that, one, you admire them more and you appreciate what they did even more. But two, you realize they're not the ultimate source of truth. They're also human beings trying to figure it out. And so there is nuance there for you to stray off that path that they have defined for you out of fear and out of conformity and safety and reach the same height, if not further. Yeah, I love how nuanced you are since my show is built on nuances at, the, at this current era of death of nuances. Yes, I really appreciate your nuanced perspective. And yeah, it's um, once again, if you're brown or Asian like us, that pressure of adhering to what a parents want is, it's, it's real. And it took me years and years. And you also have to earn their respect, right? They have to respect that, oh, I can actually trust our kids to be the adults we raise them to be. And that's once again, it's a reflection of their parenting. And my mom said, said this to me since I used to see her once a year when I used to live here. Um, uh, just me and my sister. And she was like, hey, uh, Benoit, son, you have to understand that every parent, including us, we were parents for the first time, right? There is no starter kit. There is no perks and buffs to become, oh yeah, bam, first run, perfect. Like they are literally in real time, as you said, children, but this time as parents figuring their life as what it means to be a parent and instilling and hopefully raising socially adequate humans to release them to the wild so to speak um yeah i want to stay on this family train uh for one more brief moment before we go into the podcasting route get some more um, tangible strategy for people who are interested in who are aspiring to be uh, content creators and so on uh, i do know that uh once again as immigrant offsprings we put high emphasis on the pillars of family right and especially as you know with human psychology uh, modeling matters and who we grow up looking matters and who we grow up with matters as a fellow men Arsh, i do know that during my research we talked about this before we hopped on the mic briefly that i found out and discovered the passing of your father uh, your biological father um and i also experienced something similar where my mom went through a uh, md nest syndrome about a year ago and she had a mental breakdown and she was like missing for like a while. Uh, it was it was it was the probably the most terrifying experience I've ever had. I thought I lost my mom, 
And in those moments, it really pulls you back into this reality to show you what matters. This family, safety, as you said, beyond all these accolades, all this shit we're trying to do, right? Um, but especially as a man, I do know that the loss of a father might mean a little bit different from a man to a man. So uh, I'd love for you to just share, you know, how has that journey been like, whether it's just the grief, whether it's just the healing, but just about the loss of your father and what that like really means to you. I don't really think about it in, in terms of like, I guess the significance that I, that, that the world puts on death. Um, and I spoke about this earlier, right? Like to me, we don't know why we're here. We don't know what this existence is. It's, it's equally fascinating to me to think about what this is, what this existence is and think about what death is like, what happens when we're dead? What, what was happening before we were here? Like, where were you before you were born? It's just one of those things. But um, obviously losing a parent is not um, easy. It's not something that you necessarily even think it's gonna, like it's going to happen as, as fast as it can or as fast as it does sometimes. Um, again, in this situation, I didn't have any sort of inclination of it happening. And it kind of happened in two months in November. Um, now keep in mind, there's distance between us. My father was still in India and I was still, I was in the U S so we're communicating on a regular basis. And in November, he starts sharing that, uh, he's, um, he's, you know, having medical problems and I didn't even think it was significant. Like to me, the thought of a parent passing away didn't cross my mind. And I only say that, I only put emphasis on that for, for anybody listening that doesn't think it can happen. You should always be aware that the possibility is closer than you think. And that should change the way you view your parents. That, that should change the way you communicate with them. That should change how long you hold a grudge against them. That, that should change how you take offense to what they're saying as opposed to trying to understand where they're coming from. Like really like, cause once they're gone, you don't have, like you can continue to develop as a person and then in retrospect, understand where they were coming from because now you're in their shoes, but you won't have the moment. You may not have the moment rather to then go back and say, you know what? I understand where you're coming from. So always take the real-time play, real-time flow of life as a moment to be appreciative and to seek understanding towards your parents and their actions and their words. Never feel like they'll always be around or there's enough time to go. Oh, my parents are only in their 40s or 50s. Like, we got time. I'll figure it out. I'll remember at all times they're proud of you and at all times there's enough beauty that exists in that relationship to appreciate what they've done and what they continue to do. And that's what I've learned from this situation is um, realizing that that was the amount of time I had with him. That's it. The last time I saw him, we're, we were just coming off of this virus stuff, right? Like COVID. So last time I actually saw him was in 2018 or 2019. I can't remember exactly. Uh, uh, 2018, uh, right before 2019. And it's crazy to think about that. It's crazy to think about if I would have spent more time as I developed as a person. In 2018, 
I'm 25 now. I would have been 21. That that's uh, I've grown a lot since then. So all the things that I've learned, the shift in perspective, I didn't get to share in real time in person. So if you have that luxury, if you have that privilege, you should understand its value. The way you talked about that seizing moment isn't always available and it's never guaranteed with the transient nature of life, right? Which is what you're speaking to. Yeah, after my mom's gone missing because of the mental breakdown, she blacked out. She literally drove her into a hotel and passed out, right? Unknowing to us, all her cell phones were off. We filed a missing police report. I, I've never shared this story on the mic, but I felt called to. But the good thing is, of course, my mom is healthy now. She's amazing. She was able to work through her emptiness syndrome, right? To trying to find more purpose in her life, not as my parents, but as her individual human being, as my mom. Uh, it really called me in a way, a very cosmic way for me to address a lot of things and make a lot of things right between us. Because I had this vivid, visceral realization as exactly what you said, Arsh. Next moment is not guaranteed, period. And nothing hurts more than lingering regrets. Because that's one thing that you cannot go back to. It's all retrospect. But the moment's passed. It's gone. It's no more. And you have to deal with that consequences by yourself for the rest of your life. Uh, I share that because I want to enter into the thread of regrets with you, right? Because regrets is a common theme in business and in life. I'm a veteran and I experienced my first army deployment in 2017, where I had to contemplate my own morality for the first time, the chance of death. And that is one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. In retrospect, I attribute so much gratitude to that experience because it changed my projection for life. That's, that forced me to leave the private sector, that forced me to go into policymaking, now clinical perspective, because I realized that regrets is something that I cannot deal with for the rest of my life. We started this conversation with a lot of unknown variables, uncontrollable variables, and a few things we can control. Regrets is something we can control. Like happiness, it's rooted in happenstance, right? So that means there's a lot of external factors attributing to happiness, this emotional state you feel. Um, so that's not always controllable either. But I think regrets is something we can 100% control nine out of 10 times based on your decisions if you want to do something about it. So likewise, back to you, Arsh. Uh, how do you deal with and how do you bet against regrets, whether it's in life or business? Because as you said, you think about your way of life often, and I'm sure you've had many moments vividly that, ah, oh, that was a regret for moments. Oh, this was a regret. So how do you bet against? And what would you say to people who are weighted down by a lot of regrets because of whatever factors that may be? My personal sort of stance on that or like how I deal with regret is by appreciating what I have in front of me, like the time that I have. Like I have a lot of time to go and obviously nothing's guaranteed. I may not, but if I'm healthy, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I could live to a hundred, hundred plus depending on how things go. Right. If I have all of this time left, why would I focus on something that's already passed and I'm still here? Like I'm still here. I'm still focused. I'm still happy. If I think about what happened, I can't do anything about it. Like, there's nothing I can do but learn from it. If you go into the archives of your mind and you always select the regret file, 
the only thing you can do is learn what not to do next time. That's the only thing you can do. You can replay it over and over again. And eventually even that memory is going to fade. When you're 40, you're not going to even under, you're not going to, your recollection is not going to be as solid. So the further away you are from that regretful situation, the less impact it has on your emotional state when you're, again, viewing the archives. So the only thing you can do is learn from it. And shit, if you want, write it down. Like write down what you would have done differently. I think that would help too. Just write down what you would have done in that situation if you could do it over again. And see if the the characteristics of a person that would have done what you should have done or would have done are in line with how who you've become now, if that made sense. So like write down, hey, I wish in high school I would have asked out this girl, for example. Very generic example. Well, if I write down what I would have done, how I would have done it, I need to see if I'm now at this moment a capable enough person to do that. If now in this moment I'm a capable enough person that if I could go back, I would do that, then I shouldn't have regret because I won. If that situation occurs now, I know what to do. That's a very basic example. If you lose a bunch of money, that's, you know, that'll linger on longer. That could impact the course of your life, your relationships. And, you know, regret can take, it can kind of spread across a lot of other categories of existence. So before it does, you can really just take away its significance by realizing I can learn from this. I can become a more competent person. And then, yeah, then you go on and you have the rest of your life to, to not do that again. Yeah, that makes sense. So on the show, uh, with your conversations uh, with a bunch of different guests across the spectrums of business and life, um, have they ever talked about regrets or how they maybe managed their decision making moving forward based on what they've learned? Um, does anything comes up for you there? I'm not sure I'm, rem- I'm remembering anything exactly or particular. Um, but I would think the theme would be similar to what I've said. Um, and you, you can even attribute my stance on this as a byproduct of the people that I've heard talk about regret. Um, but I think it would be similar and just learn from it. You know, you can't really like, like what really is regret? If you want to dive deeper down this path, we can. What is regret? You, you wishing you did something else? Is that what regret is? You wishing you made a different decision? Or I wish I acted on that urge, but I didn't. So you wish you did something you did not do in the moment that you have no control over anymore, right? Like, what really is regret? It's, it's not, I, can't, I can think about the YouTube stuff all day, right? I can think about, oh, I shouldn't have given that person the password. I regret giving the password up. Why do I regret it? Because... I and then insert imagination. Well, if I wouldn't have given the password, then now that's your mind. Now we're suffering more in imagination than in reality. If I wouldn't have given the password, oh, I could have been a multimillionaire right now, like all the phase people or all, all the optic people. I could have made a bunch of money. I could have been in LA in a big house. Well, when would that have happened, right? In my imagination sequence? Well, if I started at 13, at 18, I could have been an LA multimillionaire. 
How stable was I at 18? What kind of shitty decisions did I make at 18? Now imagine if I had all the money and I still made those decisions because my development would have been similar. It could have been similar. I don't know. So like you can really take the significance out of regret. If you regret, you know, if it's something catastrophic, like, for example, if I didn't, how do I say it? Like, if I don't respect my parents or if I don't respect my mom and I don't see that she's getting older and I don't spend enough time with her and then something bad happens, that regret will be way more significant than giving a password because I just lost somebody that raised me. And in that case, again, it depends on what kind of regret it is. But in that case, that's, I would say that's the highest level of regret you can have. But it all depends on your value system. Because what if you don't value your parents and you never would have, or you never will? What if they were shitty parents? What if they caused a lot of trauma? So it's whatever you value. But learning how to take the value out of it as well as put, insert the value is like how you can balance regret. So um, I sense a lot of like could have, would have, should have, right? What you said, because that that's basically what's I guess the root cause and what's contributing to this regrets. And like I said with my story of because I realized I can't keep going down this private business sector path when I was getting deployed as army reservist, I had to take a pivot after I came back alive, thankfully. Um, so in terms of Let's do a hard pivot into the more tangible for the listeners, right? So right now we live in this world with ubiquitous information and knowledge, information overload, knowledge overload. There's so many smart people out there. There's so many better podcasts out there, audible books, so on and on. At the same time, likewise, there's ubiquitous of excuses and limiting beliefs, right? Oh, I could have done that. Oh, I should have done that. But I did it because of X, Y, and Z. And there are real life circumstances, but there's also a lot of just excuses. So what would you say to people, whether they want to pursue a startup, a business, a YouTube channel, or a podcast like we are, what would you say to them? They're like, oh, I can never do what Arsh does. There's no way because I'm too busy or because of insert whatever excuses. What would you say based on your own journey? I would just say it's easier than than one thinks. Um, whether it's writing an audiobook or starting a YouTube channel or podcast or anything, like it really is easier than you think. The hardest part is actually doing it, um, starting to do it. Like once you get to the gym, you'll enjoy the gym. I, I'm sure we've heard that many times, right? Like it's it, the hardest part of going to the gym is getting there, um, getting yourself up. And I I love to work out and it still happens where I'm like laying in bed and I'm so convinced. I'm so convinced today's a rest day. My body's telling me today's a rest day. I don't want to get up. There's no way I have the energy to work out. There's no way I can do it justice. I get to the gym and I have one of my, one of the best workouts. Like I just feel so good doing it. I feel like, oh, you know, it's easier to just do it than think about doing it. So I'd say. If you feel like you could never do something, you have to realize if somebody else is doing it, then you can do it. Like, granted, you can't do certain things if you're 
if you have limitations physically. And there are nuances to this. Like, it's not like you can do everything. I can't go be LeBron James. Everybody's favorite line to insert when, when, they, when they're talking about doing stuff is like acknowledging their own limitations to say, you can do everything, but you can't do what you're limited, you know, physically by or whatever. That's true. But I can feel like LeBron James. Like, I can feel like him. What, what's stopping me from feeling like him? What's stopping me from doing what I want to do and feeling like him? But what is that concept? You know what I mean? So like you can do it, but don't do it relative to somebody else. Do it relative to yourself. And that's kind of kind of hard to do in this day and age, right? With Instagram and everything. You're constantly seeing other people, other podcasts that are bigger, other podcasts that have a better you know, setup, backdrop, lighting, better guests, bigger production budget, um, better numbers, like, okay, (laughs) I'm still doing it. I still enjoy it. So it's like, just do it for what you want to do it for. Yeah, it's like a full circle since we started this conversation like an hour and a half ago about validation and the need to validate. Uh, But a lot of times, like, that's part of the nature. I know you posted an Instagram story asking about what, what do you think about people incessantly post about the flexing or their uh, topless shirtless pictures, right? Uh, about like, why is that? Like, why do people want to uh, post so much about them working out or so much about their physique? I think updates? somebody tagged me in that. Um, and this is a guest I had on my show where we kind of touched on it. Um, and so they tagged me in a post or a story where it's like psychologists say that people that post about working out are inherently narcissistic or something. And I just reposted and I'm like, I would love to hear some thoughts because I didn't necessarily agree with that. Like, I think we're all narcissistic. I think it's good to be narcissistic to a certain extent. Like don't, well, let me, let me paint that a little bit better. There are some elements of narcissism that can be beneficial, but not all of them, right? Like I don't even, I don't even think I know the definition that well enough to speak on it. But the point I'm getting at is like obsessing over yourself with the lens of progression is not necessarily bad. That's what I mean by narcissistic. But um, yeah, if somebody wants to post their workouts, that's cool. Like, I don't, I don't care if if you want to post your workout. I just think it's a little, it's a little weird when you categorize it as I'm just trying to motivate people or I'm trying to inspire people. I think that is weird because, you know, nobody's really asking for that. Like you, you do it because you like the way it feels. You like the validation that comes with showing how hard you work. I've seen people be borderline condescending when they post workout stuff where it's like, they'll post like running like six miles. And then the next story is, if you wanted to, you would have, there are no excuses. Then the next post is them in an ice bath. And then the next story is like them eating a fit meal food kit that their friend, you know, owns. And like, they're like, this is the best stuff I've ever had. And then the ne- it's like, I understand that's your life. But when they, when those same people are around people that don't want to do that and don't have the same energy, that's what I have a problem with. If I love to work out, and hypothetically speaking, you don't, even though you obviously do. If you don't love to work out, and I love to work out, 
and then I'm around you and I look at you as a piece of shit or I'm like, oh, oh, I can never be this guy. Look at me, man. I, I work out. I take ice baths. I fucking I'm, I'm the epitome of having hacked the perfect morning routine. Like, dude, my morning routine is way better than yours. I'm way more productive. Like, my time blocks are way better scheduled. Like, when you get into that kind of thinking, and I'm like, what is that? What are we doing? We're all human beings. We all make decisions. We all want to do different things. You can, and like, the whole concept of a tribe, like, I found my tribe. That basically means you don't fuck with anybody else outside of this. Like you only value and respect humans that are in this tribe, in air quotes, or you value and respect people that share enough similarities or have enough overlap. But everybody else you view as, you view below yourself. Like if I, if I see somebody who doesn't work out, in my head, I'm convinced I'm higher on the hierarchy than them. Granted, there are many benefits of working out, but this can apply to anything else, right? Like working out is kind of a binary thing because if you don't work out, then you're literally killing yourself. Um, but if you do work out, you are technically more healthy. But still, if you look at it from any other lens, it's like, I don't value this person. I don't respect this person. They could have a better life than you. They could be way more happy than you. They could live longer than you. Like they could have a way better existence than you. They could have a better perspective than you where they don't try to shit on you or minimize you. So that's what like the working out stories, that's the tangent that I, that I go into when I think about somebody posting constantly. I rather just work out and, and reap the benefits for myself, you know? Yeah. A lot of people use on social media like, oh, what's the point of owning a Ferrari if you don't showcase it, right? Uh, that's some of the lens I do is because I'll... I don't do it anymore, but I used to post because you want to showcase your progression without any motivational quotes. I just, I like looking at myself sometimes, you know, and like Arsh said, I just want to dis uh, distinguish. He's talking about narcissism in colloquial terms, not clinical narcissism. That's very different. And this is not the place for that at all. Um, I want to, uh, we're definitely coming towards the end of the episode for sure. I want to hit you with a few more questions uh, in terms of focusing on what we do. Uh, individuals just doing different things in life, trying to navigate the stimulation of life, how we started this podcast, a full circle. Uh, what are some of the best success stories um, that you think about or that you know? Or another way to think about this question is if you have your own personal Mount Rushmore of role models uh, in whatever way you want to define that as, what are some of the best? Because I could tell you're well-read, you're a ferocious reader, you're, you're a thinker by heart. Yeah, what are some of the best success stories defined as you see fit that comes uh, comes to your mind? I think I'd put Kanye West number one. Uh, I'll give you the Mount Rushmore. Kanye, Elon Musk. Those are two people I think are definitely up there. Everybody else kind of gets a spot and loses a spot based on based on how they how they act and you know how their values change. Um, especially just only the values that we're able to see from a public perspective. But I'd say Kanye's story is, has been the most inspiring to me. Um, and especially with the documentaries, like I was a fan. Obviously, we're, we've all been a fan of his music way before the documentary. But I started admiring his philosophy on life in like 2015, 2016 with the interviews. Like 
watching his interviews really opened my mind in terms of like the nuances of life and how he's just operating in the nuances. If you're familiar with the brand Off-White, Off-White is really nuance. Like the concept behind Off-White, which Kanye may or may not have inspired. Um, he definitely inspired Virgil, who created Off-White in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure if he had any influence in Off-White. I'm sure he had creative influence throughout Off-White's journey. But um, anyway, the point is Off-White is just nuance. It's the space between black and white, like off-white. It's like gray, the gray area, the nuance that we don't focus on. So that's been a theme in Kanye's sort of life and music and, and everything he does. And he's an example of somebody that can do what, you know, whatever they want. Like nobody believes in his ability. If you look from the beginning, nobody believed in his ability to rap. Um, he became one of the best rappers, biggest rappers of all time. Nobody believed in his ability to make clothes or, or go into fashion. Yeezy is a billion dollar enterprise. He does stuff for Balenciaga. He inspired Virgil, who was the head of Louis Vuitton um, and in terms of creative direction. So whatever whatever ceiling people put on him, he breaks past. And I like that because that's what nuance is. Nuance is essentially like lack of nuance is a ceiling. Your thought has to be capped at this point. You can no longer, you can't go beyond this ceiling that we've put on your thought. That's what nuance is. Going past that and saying, wait, wait a minute, there's, there's slight deviations. There's other ways to approach this. And so that's where the nuanced sort of thinking comes from and is inspired by. And then Elon, obviously, just the selfless nature of creating for humanity, all, you know, all while getting shit on, like at all times since the beginning. That's such a, it's so crazy to me that anybody can say anything negative about him. That's, if, if, some, if you see somebody saying something negative about Elon Musk, you should be immune to any negativity in your own life. You should never, like, does that make sense? Because, like, you should take away the significance of anything negative anybody says about you. If, if you recognize that there are people that will say negative things about somebody who's slaving away, living way below their means to create stuff that's going to impact humanity in a positive way, our children's children. Like, people don't even think that far ahead, let alone have the desire or capability to build something, even a fraction of what Tesla is. And we're not even talking about SpaceX, Neuralink, Boring, any of that other shit. We're, I'm talking about one company, but they will post on Twitter what they think about him. And as if like, that is so significant. And its significance is only in terms of likes and retweets. Other like-minded people that don't understand will like and retweet it giving it its significance and that person will walk around that the earth for the rest of the week, the rest of the day, however long that dopamine lasts, thinking they are smarter than Elon Musk. That's mind blowing to me. So anyway, I'll put those two on, on the Mount Rushmore. Um, but I'm curious to hear yours, man. What, who would you put up there? Yeah. Before I answer that question, the, just a few more, uh, I've been an early, I've had early investment Tesla very early on ever since I read his biography, the only biography on Elon Musk to date. And yeah, the fact that he was a co-founder in PayPal and he put everything that he made into Tesla and Tesla is the first company that went public since Chrysler in the 1950s. And 
when he went public, no one in their right fucking minds with that much money and competency will start an electric car company, the least lucrative business to start at that time. It's, so when people say Elon's a businessman, of course he is. It's part of the game. Um, but he's Elon's all about profit. No, he's not. You don't know anything about Elon Musk. And of course, these are the snippets we read through. But the biography, they're really, really good, holistic, com- comprehensive job about who he is. And that's when I bought, I was like, oh, I want to buy Tesla, not because of the brand, but because I believe in Elon. So Elon would 100% will be on my Mount Rushmore, 100%. In terms of Steve Jobs, in terms of creativity, like nuances, right? In terms of he's the first modern innovator that combined liberal arts and technology. And he is the most intuitive businessman I think ever lived in our generation. And that attributes to his Indian, his uh, a lot of a spiritual path as well, for sure. And his experience at Reed College, all the psychedelics he's done as well, as he says it. Uh, but in terms of innovation, creativity, uh, Steve Jobs is definitely up there. And um, yeah, I'm all, I feel like I, I will share two since you shared two, uh, since I also have to think about the rest of three. But I think those two people are always there. And of course, our own personal family members are up there too. But in terms of creativity and really doing and pursuing what you believe in, I think those two people stand on top on a pinnacle because speaking of your ability to deter, your ability to not let external noises deter you, I think those people exemplify the epitome of that, right? On the highest level ever done. And just Elon's vision to make us the first multiplanetary species. How do you come up, how do you come up with that vision? Because his horizon of thinking is 100 years. Like he thinks in 100 years of increments. Same thing with Kanye. Yeah. The, um, I still have to watch his documentary, but I do know that, that he went through a, a period of like asking billionaires for money on Twitter, I think four or five years ago. And he's like, you know what? Fuck y'all. I'm going to become a billionaire. And he became one through Gap, right? Which is his net worth was at six billion at one point before COVID hit. I was like, Kanye can do whatever he wants. The dudes, you know, um, I don't know about, I don't know enough about him on a personal level because there's a lot of controversy, a lot of headline culture. So I'm hesitant to put him on top five. But in terms of his ability and capacity to do what he said he would do, he's definitely on the top as well. Um, but yeah, man, this is a, yeah, this is an awesome conversation. I intentionally didn't go too much into the metaphysical spirituality realm and like philosophy since I know you're all about that. I, I love that too. I'm not really into spirituality like that. I, I'm not like super spiritual. Um, I don't meditate or anything. But yeah, I think it's a good decision to stray away from that because I just had some friends over yesterday um, that, that are from Houston and I haven't seen them in a while. And they're very much into that. I mean, their, their way of thinking is like way beyond what I can rationalize. Um, and so it's an interesting parallel that we have. We actually recorded an episode, kind of just the contrast of like the logical framework that I guess I find myself embodying at the moment due to my job and everything. Like I have to be exactly logical and precise at all times. And the contrast of them being free individuals thinking how they want to think. And like, I think it was interesting. So I definitely recognize that whatever spiritual elements I exude in my conversation or behavior are. One, not defined uh, by myself as spiritual, but two, nowhere near the level of like actual spiritual people that, that read books on this stuff. And like, so just want to clarify that uh, for, for the listeners. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. But if you look at like the pathos, logos, and ethos, the underlying theme is spirituality. But you have to go because even Stoicism, I know you're a fan of Ryan Holiday. Um, he's it's also spiritual by nature, but it's very nuanced, and you have to go really deep into it. Um, with that being said, man, the I want to hit you with the signature discover more question for the podcast, which is a hallmark question. So the whole podcast is predicated on nuances and insights, and by talking to different folks who represent different aspects of life, since it's multidimensional, as you said throughout. After this very insightful and encompassing conversations, what is one domain in your own life that you want to discover more about after the end of this recording? And the second fold of that question is, what is an area in our listeners' life, whether it's your listeners or mine, that you want to encourage and even challenge to think more about, to discover more about, to follow that curious call, wherever path it may lead them down to? Oh, that's a great question. And again, it's been really fun having this conversation. Um, I'd say for myself and for the listeners, I think I can combine it. I would just say philosophy. I think it's it's really interesting to explore philosophy beyond just surface level stuff that we're, you know, fed in school, even if, if even we're fed that, um, cause some, some schools don't teach that some schools don't talk about philosophy. Um, some majors don't require philosophy as one of the courses you have to take. Right. So I would encourage like just exploration in that realm of, People that spent their entire lives, maybe not their entire, but most of their lives thinking about existence and human beings and why we do certain things in life. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Marcus Aurelius, we look at meditations that, man, think about when that was written. Just think about when that was written. That's all I'll say. Like, explore that. Explore that and see what you can pull from the past. Um, Because believe it or not, as smart as we think we are, you know, our brain necessarily hasn't evolved in that sense. We still, we, we still had many, many, many smart people. That's why the world is the way it is. Uh, and they have a lot of wisdom to offer. So maybe a combination of history and philosophy, I guess. Is that for you both discover more and also for the listeners? I'd say so, man, because anything else is like a reflection of that. Yeah, gotcha. That's that, the pond that you're reflecting reality off of is the pond of like, what is, how are you even able to reflect this? Like, what is the foundation? Other things that come to mind just, just for like general curiosity's sake would be more about physics. I really want to learn about the universe and like learn how to comprehend it or, or, you know, learn how to like, I guess, observe it, um, read it, understand it. Yeah, this is definitely, we'll need another hour, but what I think a lot about is like original thoughts and how rare that is, right? In terms of Mark Aurelius and so many thinkers before us, and even us, I'm sure if I go through your 288 episodes that's released, I'm sure I'll find similar things we talk about or I'll see, seem similar iterations of articulations, even though it was never rehearsed. And a lot of content creators get canceled, they get shunned on, they're like, oh, you copied this other content creator because the videos are posted around the same time. I was like, dude, you know how rare original thoughts are? Everything we talk about has probably been iterated and reiterated and revamped and reinvented and repackaged eons ago, millennia ago, right? 
So that's something I think a lot about is how rare it is and why we can't be so full of it. Because we're definitely not the first people to think about whatever you thought about. So if you want to have original thoughts, you should start your own language or something. Like <laughs> there's there's no way to have original thoughts. I like what Napoleon Hill said about this. Thoughts are just free and they float from person to person. And the same, you know, multiple people will have the same thought. The thought will enter multiple people's minds, but only one or two of them will act on that thought, act on that impulse, act on that desire. And that's how their paths separate in life is like you and I could have had the same idea four years ago to do something or create a brand. But if you went and did it, then that's the path you went down and I acted on a different thought. So there's like this like whole being so, you know, being so like precious about your thoughts and ideas and, and, and knowledge, like knowledge in general, just guarding knowledge, guarding information so that somebody else doesn't end up having an advantage over you. Or like, I can't, I can't deal with that stuff. Cause I'll just tell everybody like exactly how I'm feeling and what I'm thinking I'll say the best available information I have at this time and then that's it. I don't care if it helps somebody. I don't care if it helps somebody that doesn't care about me or wishes, you know, has malicious intent towards me. I don't care. It's just you would have heard it anyway. Like you would have found it anyway. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like even in a business term, like the so-called competitive advantage for being early, it's also it's been proven it's a fallacy because they may have more opportunities that's without competition, but they also have to internalize the cost of tribulations, trials, and put all that stuff. Absolutely. You know how easy it is to replicate an existing idea? Way easier than pioneering it. But there's a, f- a sweet spot there as well, right? Like you want to be at least like top five. You don't want to be like number eight. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But for some of who are interested in this, there's a, g- a book called Originals where he talks about the pioneers, the trending, the followers, but also the nuance of that. But I described the same in terms of what Napoleon Hill said, the philosophy of oneness. That's why it's hard for me, and I'm a little bit surprised by you're not spiritual in the way you define it, is it's just hard for me to not be spiritual in life because there's just so many weird things that's unexplainable. And I'm very empirical. I'm very scientific. I'm a clinician by trait. But life is fucking weird, man. Life is trippy. That's weird. Um, like, why do fruit flies get DMT from a dead toad's body? Why is that? Why is there a tree of life ubiquitous across different cultures with thousands of years apart who have never conversed with each other? Why is that, right? There's so many weird things. And I think my psychedelics has a lot of influence in that sense. But we'll love to talk more about that um, down the road as well. But yeah, um, there's nothing for me to do but roll out the red carpet for you, Arsh. Uh, where can people connect with you, find more about you, maybe see your... Uh, flexing of the tesla when it finally arrives whenever that may be uh but yeah where can people connect with you to learn more about your show and everything in between yeah and again thanks for having me on it's a great conversation i feel like we'll have many more um for those that want to listen to my podcast or check out my stuff it's the flex coach on all platforms no spaces um podcast instagram spotify apple everywhere and yeah that's it awesome and yeah to all the listeners uh, as always, if you have hopped on this train of discover more with us, uh, immense gratitude. And I know the YouTube analytics I'm working really hard to build shows that most of you guys aren't subscribed yet. So please subscribe, like, and share. Uh, share this episode with whoever's listening. If you thought this brought any value to you, 
uh, since it's still unmonetized as we speak. And yeah, check out Arch. He has a very succinct and one of the most radio-friendly, mesmerizing, raspy voice he has, which is a genetic trait he was given and bestowed upon by the gods. So, but yeah, this is always a pleasure. Um, I had a lot of fun and yeah, I could definitely see us hopping again and just talk more down the road offline and so on. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Uh, before you go, Arsh, any last parting message for the listeners to conclude this wonderful episode? Oh man, I feel like there's so much pressure in that. What do you even say? Do I summarize my whole existence? Do I give the best piece of advice I have? What do I say? Um, I just say curiosity is a beautiful thing. Um, obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you're a curious person. Um, that's a very good trait. Don't let anybody ever take that away from you or put you in a box where you can't be curious and think. Um, and yeah, just enjoy every moment. I think that's like the generic shit to say at the end of everything, right? Like just enjoy life, take it one day at a time. Also I'm 25. Um, so I don't know shit. Don't listen to what I'm saying. You know, take 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 what I'm saying as just a stream of thought that I had as an individual with my experiences. Take whatever value you can derive from this, but also understand that in 10 years I might sound completely different and have completely different opinions and I'm open to do I'm open to that. I'm not married to my ideas and my thoughts at the moment. And yeah, it's been a pleasure uh having this conversation with you, man. Yeah, we're not responsible for anything that good or bad happens in your life after listening to this episode. Uh, do your own discernment and power of discernment really matters. But like I said, please subscribe, like, and share. And as always, thank you for hopping on this week's of Discover More and hope you continue to answer that curiosity call and see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you.